Welcome to episode 144 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to Dennis Lormel, who served in the FBI for 28 years. During his career, he gained extensive major case experience as a street agent, supervisor, and senior executive in complex financial-related investigative matters. In this episode, Dennis Lormel reviews terrorist financing and money laundering. Shortly before the 9-11 attacks, he was promoted to chief of the FBI's financial crimes program. He immediately established an investigative organization within the FBI that, within days after the 9-11 attacks, identified the funding stream that supported the terrorist. His efforts evolved into the formation of a formal section within the counterterrorism division of the FBI known as the Terrorist Financing Operations Section. This multi-agency, multi-discipline entity attained international recognition as one of the world's elite operations for tracking, investigating, and disrupting terrorist-related financial activity. For his visionary contributions, Dennis Lormel received numerous commendations to include the Department of Justice Award for Investigative Initiative and the CIA's George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism. Currently, Dennis Lormel is the founder and president of DML Associates, LLC, providing consulting services and training related to terrorist funding, money laundering, fraud, financial crimes, suspicious activity, and due diligence. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. As you are aware, during my career, I primarily worked economic fraud, economic crime cases. So getting a chance to talk to Dennis, who used to be the chief of the FBI's financial crimes program, and to listen to him talk about how the FBI tracked and investigated and disrupted terrorist activity by following the money, by tracking the finances, was so interesting. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you only have a few days left. If you're listening to this at the end of November, you only have a few days left to join my reader team if you're not already a member so that you would be eligible to win that FBI collectible holiday ornament that's part of my November giveaway. So if you want to have a chance to win, sign up to be a member of my reader team at jerrywilliams.com on my Facebook page at Jerry Williams Author, or if you're listening to this on a podcast app that supports links, sign up right there in the description of this episode. And the other thing that I wanted to remind you about is that I am putting together my schedule for early 2019, and I am always looking for retired and former FBI agents to come on the show to review one of their FBI cases. So if you are a retired agent and you have a great case to review, please let me know. Just email me at jerrywilliamsauthor at gmail.com. If you're a listener and you have a great suggestion, let me know that too. Just this week, 
I got an email from Angie who had a fantastic case suggestion about a case I didn't know anything about. I was able to locate the agent. We spoke on the phone and I already have him scheduled to record an episode in two weeks, which you'll hear in January. And guess what? If you give me an idea for a case and I'm able to record the interview, not only will you get producer credit on that show, but I will send you FBI retired case file review sticker, button, and podcast cards. Hope to hear from you soon. But for now, here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Dennis Lormel. Hey, Dennis, how are you? Good, Jerry, and I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So am I. I worked economic crime for most of my career, so anything having to do with paper trails and finances is something that I'm very, very interested in. It's, it's definitely you know, the, the kind of cases that I like to follow. I think uh, terrorist financing is an incredibly important topic. And to your point about economic crimes, following the money is, is one of the best investigative approaches we can take. And it's certainly one of the most direct investigative approaches. And that's certainly what we learned with uh, 9-11, that going after the money right from the outset was probably the best investigative tool we had and, and led quickly to the identification of Al-Qaeda being involved and, and definitively identifying them as being culpable just by virtue of being able to trace the money back to them. And I think people just don't realize going forward, how important it is to be able to follow the money and get a sense of how these organizations fund themselves, uh, how individuals fund themselves, and the steps we can take to disrupt them. Because when it comes to terrorism, the two biggest vulnerabilities for terrorists are finance and communication. And, And the more we can do to disrupt the flow of funds to terrorists, the more we can do to disrupt them from their ability to act. And, and so that's critically important. Absolutely. And I know that the Bureau has had many successes with organized crime and, and, and drug enterprises by following the money. So definitely that would be a tool that we would also want to use when it comes to terrorism. Now, I've had a chance to read your, your bio to the listeners before we started uh, this interview, but I, I do want to quickly establish what you were doing just before 9-11. I know it was having to do with uh, finance, but specifically, what were you involved in? Well, just prior to 9-11, I was the chief of the financial crimes program. So I was assigned to the criminal division and and I ran the the financial programs um, at FBI headquarters. And so I was in a position on 9-11 to get directly involved by virtue of my position and and the fact that we needed to have a comprehensive financial investigation and, um, and, and things kind of fell in place that way. But let let me go back if, if I can for a second to, to, to really, and I, well, an unfortunate irony, uh, because a few weeks before nine 11, maybe about a week before nine 11, I was having a meeting. We had the FBI had hired, a consultant, like a business consultant, business planning consultant, to work uh, with the bureau and different programs in terms of uh, establishing priorities and and things. And so, you know, you'll appreciate with your background in economic crimes, we were trying to establish what program priorities, the investigative priorities, should be across 
all field offices and say, you know, uh, back then maybe healthcare fraud should have been our number one priority, but um, we were looking at other crime problems as well. And I looked at New York and I looked at other cities and said, well, you know, it's not fair to task them to have healthcare as the number one problem when, like in New York, you're the financial capital. And I know that other uh, cities had other problems. So how could we develop a sense of more flexibility to allow the SACs to burn their resources as they saw what their priority crime problems were and not to be unfairly punished by that but from a program standpoint by not burning the, the man hours in the higher priority programs as designated by headquarters? And I'm being long-winded, and the point for that is at the end of one of those meetings, that consultant asked me, if the terrorism division should have considered having a financing section or or some some should they be doing something more consistent regarding financing and i said absolutely and so we were in the process of planning a meeting with the assistant director for the for the terrorism division at that point in time to discuss you know, how can they leverage what we did in financial crimes or could they do something to mirror what we were doing and then you fast forward a week and 911 happens and from that point forward, it was obvious that, that they didn't have that capability and, and, and it was an area of vulnerability in a sense. Uh, and, um, and, and we established in short order um, an investigation. Director Mueller wanted to have a centralized investigation and Tom Picard was the deputy director at the Tom time. And Tom and I were both supervisors in New York together. And we happened to both supervise financial crime squads. So he knew my financial crimes background. On, I think it was September 13th, I saw the deputy director and director and told them that we needed to have a concerted financial investigation. And I remember Director Mueller asking me, why would he allow us to take resources out when they already had an ongoing investigation? And I told him that we would be able to, as, as we develop financial information, it needed to be centralized. And if we had that centralization and we were able to really start to identify and put a timeline together, we would, we would be able to tell him probably faster than anybody else who was responsible. And at the time, we were concerned about a second wave of attacks. So if there was going to be a second wave of attacks, it would have likely been part of the same financing package, so to speak. Because that's you know, how the how the, these organizations would have operated back then, and what I saw also was the opportunity. Because my belief was that you know we were caught we were caught totally by surprise, and the financial financial industry was caught totally by surprise, and we weren't we weren't monitoring or looking for you know how money would flow to support an operation like that. And I honestly believed that it would be pretty superficial in terms of being able to follow the money, because even if false identification was used, and it was, it would be more superficial and it, and it wouldn't be as opaque as we see today. And so there would be a little better transparency and we'd be able to follow the flow of funds, which we were able to do. And in the first week or so um, after 9-11, we, uh, I, I put together an investigative plan or um, a recommendation to stand up the terrorist financing operations section. And it had a kind of a two-pronged plan. It was one was to continue to support uh, the 9-11 investigation, the pent bomb investigation, and then two, to build a template for future 
terrorist financing investigations because what we saw and what we believed was that it was really important, critically important, that the FBI have terrorist financing as a component of every terrorism investigation. Now, that makes sense. I know that I did an interview, and I can't think of the name of the retired agent that I interviewed, but he was talking about a counterfeit cigarette case yes. and that they found that the sales from those counterfeit cigarettes was supporting uh, terrorism. Yes, that's true. So that case was Operation Smokescreen, and that preceded 9-11, but it, it really is a model case study because what you had was Hezbollah, and they actually had an operational cell of individuals who could have had easily been activated to commit a terrorist act here in the United States. But what that cell was, was even though that they could have been operatives, they were a fundraising cell and they raised funds by uh, cigarette smuggling and, and doing the counterfeit uh, cigarettes along the East Coast. So they were buying cigarettes in North Carolina and they were transshipped them up to Dearborn, Michigan and areas like that where you had a lot of uh, expatriate communities, uh, Lebanese and, and other uh, um, ethnicities that these people were aligned with. So they sold a lot of these cigarettes by falsifying the tax certifications and things on the cigarettes and transporting cigarettes that were sold pretty cheaply in North Carolina. And you didn't have this, this taxes the way you would in other venues. And they were selling them, as I said, up and down the East Coast. And they were making millions and millions of dollars. And that money was going directly back to Hezbollah. So why don't you tell us about, you know, right after 9-11, as you are setting up this new terrorist financing operations section, some of those initial things that you found that helped the FBI identify the people responsible? Well, I think it was a combination. We um, basically worked in tandem with um, Pat DeMuro. They, they brought Pat down from New York to, to, to run the pen bomb investigation. So, you know, we were supporting them and and we were establishing a timeline for as far back as we could with the 19 hijackers. And the more we learned about the hijackers, we certainly were able to start putting together I-2 flowcharts and different diagrams of the financial connectivity between the 19 hijackers. And it became crystal clear right from the pretty much the outset that Marwan al-Shehi and Muhammad Atta were two of the uh, leaders of the 19 hijackers because most of the financial activity and all of the, certainly the email and telephone communications kind of emanated around them. So you saw incredible circles around them and, and a lot of connectivity, and particularly among the other people involved. And then we built that back to the facilitators in Germany and in, um, in Abu Dhabi, and then back through them, you know, back to the organization a little more. So, you know, it, it, one of the things too that, that we had to do right at the outset, if you recall, right after 9-11, the director, basically, I mean, everybody in the FBI was working the 9-11 response, and all 56 field officers started out running unilateral investigations, in a sense, and those offices that had agents that were able to start in financial investigations, and a number of offices did, they were all subpoenaing the same bank records as as records were known. So I was getting calls at the headquarter level from banks being inundated with grand jury subpoenas that were redundant 
they were everybody was subpoenaing the same thing. So one of the first things I did when Director Mueller and uh, Deputy Director Picard gave me authority to go ahead and start that investigation was I asked Tom, because he was having at the time, field office phone calls with SACs and ASACs like three times a day. And so when they agreed that I could set up this investigation, I told Tom it was incumbent that no more grand jury subpoenas be requested or or, um, issued unless they came through me. And we had to set up a control mechanism. So we made sure that there wasn't that redundancy of, you know, the the duplicate uh, grand jury subpoena. So getting that control in place was really a bit challenging because we had to do it very quickly. And then also, and, and how and how was that received? Because it know, wasn't received. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, a special agent in charge of a, a particular division—that's yes. his—that's his division. Those, yes, those are his guys. Absolutely, yeah, and it wasn't received agents. real well. Um, I remember telling two of the unit chiefs that worked for me that I had this plan, and we were going to go to the director, and and we needed to centralize an investigation. And I told them kind of offhandedly, but seriously at the same time that this wasn't going to be very career enhancing for any of us because we were likely to alienate a lot of SACs. But at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, what we did was Mueller made it apparent that then this is the direction we're going in. So you know, we really had to buy into it. But what I did was I started to establish credibility with the field offices because we were basically a back office for the field office. So I took on the responsibility of collecting all that information, but we made it all readily available to anybody that needed it. And certainly to all the field offices and those field offices that did have terrorist financing investigations or that needed resources to help work those cases, I was able to help kind of leverage and and move resources to where they were needed for from a financial investigative standpoint. And as you know, based on your background, you know, having that expertise is really important when you have people who understand you know how to conduct financial investigations and get get going after the money. And then we also had the opportunity to leverage other agencies because at headquarters, what we did was we reached out to all of the federal agencies and, you know, there was the typical turf wars uh, and, and some of that was difficult. But the, you know, right after 9-11, the agencies were all really good. So, you know, I think as, and, and I knew a, a number of SACs and, and they knew they, they knew me. So I, I, I had hoped that I, I would gain their confidence. And, but it was a difficult time period because there was a pretty good resentment to, to wanting to see, as you pointed out, information or or investigative uh, authority when the field office uh, could investigate or had investigative jurisdiction over you know some of the some of the leads that that we had going on and what what I tried to get out there right away Jerry was that you know hey we don't want you to stop doing what you're doing we want you to continue it but what we're going to do is we're going to establish a global database back here so I had more of a macro approach to things where each field offices had a micro field office approach and and so we wanted to combine all of the intelligence that people had and we were able to set up a, a database at headquarters that enabled us to do that and enabled us to share information with other agencies as well. And that was one of the ways we got the other agencies to really buy in and that gave us leverage you know, in dealing with the agencies. And we immediately set up an operation at headquarters. And before people could blink, we had the other agencies in our space working with us. And that included the intelligence community. And, and 
at the end of the day, we wound up sending what became a unit of agents over to the CIA. They had their own financial branch that they stood up after 9-11. And so we mirrored them and, and we were able to leverage a, a, a real good work and relationship with them. Other areas in the Bureau had issues with the agency you know, and, and sharing information, especially as we were expanding into the international arena. And there was obviously resistance with a lot of the CIA components on the financial front. We were totally in sync because we understood that I could leverage their capabilities overseas and they didn't have domestic jurisdiction. We did. And so we were able to leverage that and and share information with them that they otherwise wouldn't have had benefit of. Could you break it down for us and and talk about some of the actual things that occurred that allowed money to flow between terrorist organizations or within terrorist organizations. And I think that's critically important. Thank you for uh, bringing this line of questioning up because I think it's critically important. One of the things like you, I spent most of my career investigating financial crimes. And for me, visualizing the flow of funds is critically important. And so what we did after 9-11 was we tried to visualize the flow of funds from the point of origin, meaning where money was being raised, to that point of an attack or to the end user who's going to be the terrorist. So if you visualize that as being a straight line and money coming from a source and then money going to the, the end user, I started to visualize as we started to gain a little bit of experience and started to mature our operation, we saw that there were basically three funding streams. So it was critically important to kind of identify as much as possible and simplify the funding streams. And those funding streams are still operating today, but but they're more complicated today. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But so you've got money that flows So going back to your initial question, you've got to identify, is money going to an organization or is it going to the individuals? So you've got money that's going to flow into a terrorist organization. So that would be the first funding stream. And that money that flows in from donors or that the organization raises itself, like the example of the cigarette smuggling case with Hezbollah. If money is flowing to the organization, the first thing you've got to do then is look at the organization and visualize the organization as a business, as a corporation. And basically, as a corporation, identify its business model. So for instance, Hezbollah, you know, they, they basically want to be their own state. And they're probably the most proficient organized crime family in the world, as well as a terrorist organization, because they have the best infrastructure. And, and so you know, that tells you the type of money they need to raise. And I'm getting ahead of myself there, but let me go back to my three funding streams. So there's money that flows from all sources into an organization. And, and there are a lot of misnomers about terrorist financing that it only takes a few dollars to perform a terrorist act. And that part is true, but it takes an incredible amount of money to fund an organization. So the first funding stream is money that flows to the organization. And that can flow from individual donors, that can flow from business operations, it can flow from the illegal activities like the uh, cigarette smuggling, it can flow from state sponsors like Iran to Hezbollah or other countries when they were providing money maybe to Al-Qaeda and others. And so the money that goes to an organization, it requires a lot of bandwidth because somebody can make a $5 donation to the organization, or somebody can make a $5 million donation to the organization, or they raise 
a lot of money that way. So you've got the money that flows into the organization. That's the first funding stream. Then the second funding stream is money that's going to flow from an organization to an operation or for operational purposes. So that's going to be a lesser amount of money, generally in the thousands to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you look at 9-11, you know, we identified $328,000 that flowed through bank accounts and we theorized that there was probably up to 500000 that flowed to the terrorists because money came from informal channels as well as the formal banking channels. And in the 9-11 model, you know, where the money was coming down with 328000 you know, the, the money might have come in larger increments that, you know, higher thousands of dollar increments to the facilitators. And then the facilitators would break that money down to like thousand dollar increments that they would send to the hijackers or to the operatives. And so that kind of brings you then to that third level where the facilitators or the operation money flows through there to the third level, which are the operators. And that's going to be from hundreds of dollars to the low thousands of dollars. So you can see the variances in the funding streams. In today's environment, if we look at what's going on today, it's complicated because a lot of um, terrorist activities that the Bureau is most concerned about are from homegrown violent extremists. So Director Ray has been real good about describing homegrown violent extremists at either being inspired by a terrorist organization like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, being enabled by them, or being directed by them. So that tells me from a funding standpoint, if they're inspired, that means they're probably self-funded. If they're enabled, they receive some kind of help. Was that help by going to a training camp or getting some kind of guidance and direction? Or was it by getting financial help? And if they're directed, then they're probably being funded by a terrorist organization. So you've got a lot of variations. If, if you look at the, those three funding streams I described, and you say, okay, let's liken them to a river. How many how many conduits flow into a river from other other sources? And so that's where that's where the complexity picks up. And that's why you want to try to simplify the flow of funds to the extent that you can. And the more that that you can identify, you know, what kind of organization you're dealing with, what their business model is, the individuals you're dealing with, direct arrays his description of them as being inspired, being enabled or directed, that helps you kind of give you an idea of perhaps how they're funded and how funds are going to flow a little bit. And I hope that wasn't you know too high level. No, I, I think that's perfect. I think people can visualize that. But if you could give some examples, I mean, we talked about the cigarettes. Yeah. Do you have another example of ways that an organization can raise money? Oh, sure. So kidnapping, kidnapping for ransom became big and, and Al-Qaeda. So that things changed so much with 9-11 and certainly the terrorists are adapting. And, and so their funding and, and their, their, their sources of funds is going to adapt as well. So before 9-11, for instance, um, Al-Qaeda probably received most of their funds from wealthy donors or from otherwise legitimate sources of money that that didn't come from criminal proceeds like the cigarette smuggling that's clearly just criminal proceeds but what happened was after 9/11 when the um, 
interagency community got together. It's not just the FBI conducting criminal investigations or the CIA doing intelligence operations. It's it's the State Department. Um, it's the Treasury Department making sanctions. So a lot of wealthy donors immediately were sanctioned and their assets were all frozen. And so that funding base dries up. And, and so the terrorists uh, at that point are driven into criminal activity. They have to, they have to have a source of funds. So Al Qaeda and certainly the Islamic State today, or when they had their caliphate, so to speak, they relied on a lot of criminal activity. So kidnapping for ransom became huge, and it's still a very big, big fundraiser. Uh, the Islamic State, when they took over so much territory in Iraq, they took over the oil business there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's how dysfunctional that part of the world was, if you can envision it. They took over a lot of the oil production in Syria, and Syria started buying oil from them you know, off the black market. And here's the Islamic State fighting with Syria and, and Syria buying oil from them. That is mind-boggling because yep. in the sense then, Syria is providing funds yes. to be used against them later. Yes. And wow. and so that's that's it. And and of course, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about yet that plays into all of this is corruption. Um, the level of corruption, and especially in the Middle East and that part of the world where you've got such unrest, um, it it really serves as an incubator for transnational criminal organizations and then terrorist groups. And the thing that you saw then as terrorist groups lost the state sponsors um, and, and wealthy donors, they needed to coexist more closely with um, criminals. And, and going back to the example of uh, the Islamic State, for instance, the Islamic State, um, they got involved with a lot of the smuggling routes and the smugglers and the criminal organizations um, and, the, and the supply chain, so to speak. So again, if you're visualizing the flow of goods and the flow of funds, the Islamic State would team with criminal organizations and use the same channels. And, and in fact, they, they, they might barter and sell with uh, the criminals who would then act as intermediaries for them, say, with Syria, with the oil and with you know, human smuggling, human trafficking and, and, and drugs and, and other contraband. The FBI's goal is now to prevent the next terrorism act yes and then closing that funnel uh, is very important part of of the mission yes and and you know i've been uh very fortunate because you know, i've been I, I retired at the end of 2003 but i've been very active in this space i work very closely as a consultant with uh, financial institutions and help them develop uh, anti-money laundering programs and 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 particularly to differentiate between typical money laundering and terrorist finance and and how do you identify terrorists and and in that domain I joke about being a made guy in the anti-money laundering mafia and I've been able to maintain contact with the FBI with the FBI headquarters either terrorist financing operations section or the criminal division you know I've I've uh, uh, helped them to the extent I can in terms of outreach and uh, in relationships with financial institutions and I've seen firsthand how uh, how well and and I'm very proud of the fact that the terrorist financing operations section has matured very well, and they're well respected by the financial services industry, and they work very closely with banks 
to share typologies and, and case studies, like because you were asking me before about giving some examples, and I think I gave one, but I didn't really give any very many more. But but they do that. They work with uh, bank working groups and particular you know international institutions where you know that there's a greater risk of being involved or being used as a conduit for for money laundering or terrorist financing. So, in some of the training I give. I talk about if you look at a bank or an MSB, they're either a facilitation tool or a detection mechanism for money laundering and for terrorist financing. So well, that's the more a good way to look at it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the more we can do to promote detection and awareness, and so I, I'm, I, I'm a big proponent of that. Is let's promote awareness through typologies and things. And I think the bureau's doing a great job today in outreach with with the different financial institutions to kind of share those typologies and and to help them to be able to hopefully, as they like to say, and I don't like to use the analogy the same way, to find needles among the needles. Hmm. How difficult is that, though? Because the purpose of a bank, of course, is to facilitate financial transactions yep. and to make money from those. Oh, absolutely. And so you're going in and they see a, a deal that looks really lucrative. And then, then somebody says, hey, wait a minute, this may be a deal that has to do with terrorism financing. You know, hold off. Don't do it. What kind of resistance do you see in those situations? Well, you have the, you just hit the natural rub because you have the business culture versus the compliance culture. And certainly the business culture, financial institutions, at the end of the day, they're for-profit institutions who are trying to make profit through good business deals. But one of the things that came out of 9-11 was the USA Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act calls for very robust anti-money laundering detection and, and, and capabilities. So banks are mandated to have more robust systems in place. So, you know, that natural rub where you've got, well, wait a minute, you know, you got the bank and that's a revenue center or the business is a revenue center and compliance is traditionally viewed as a cost center. Banks need to come to the realization that they shouldn't consider the compliance function a cost center. They should consider that, you know, revenue savings in a lot of degrees because banks are subject to uh, enforcement actions. And there have been a lot of enforcement actions against banks for millions and millions of dollars. You know, some banks accept that as a way of doing business, but I think most banks, and, and I've had the ability and I've had the great honor of working with a lot of compliance professionals in banks, and believe me, they're as dedicated as law enforcement is to disrupting the flow of funds to money launderers, or to ter- especially to identifying terrorist financing. So there's a good balance within a financial institution these days, for the most part, in terms of supporting the compliance uh, function in a bank. And what the bank has to demonstrate, if the regulators are looking at them, is they have to demonstrate that they have an anti-money laundering program, which includes identifying terrorist financing that's reasonably designed to detect suspicious activity. So they weigh more heavily toward detection uh, versus facilitation. That's an ongoing challenge because within the institution, as you know, that natural friction is always going to be there, the business culture versus the compliance culture. Yeah, I remember watching, I'm pretty sure it was 60 Minutes, 
where they did this kind of a sting. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, where they offered uh, a, a deal yep. or some type of a transaction. Yep. And the majority of the people, even though they knew, they were told that, you know, this was a somebody trying to go, un, uh, you know, under, yes. un, what's the word I want to use? <laughs> yep. Okay. So in that particular scenario, what they were doing was they targeted lawyers. Um, yes, and yeah, the lawyers the one. Mm -hmm. who facilitate money laundering by establishing and fronting for shell companies. And, and that goes to the issue of beneficial ownership. And that's a key issue, more so in money laundering and terrorism. But certainly it is an issue for terrorism as well, because we can, I can point out some cases that um, it would be considered terrorist financing cases that benefited from the use of uh, shell companies. But in the case you're describing, there was, I think it was Global Witness, and I've worked with Global Witness uh, quite a bit on this issue. They're promoting the beneficial ownership legislation. So we identify who the true beneficial owners of companies are. And in that particular report, they went and saw about, I believe, around 12 uh, lawyers who set up shell companies. And they let them know on the outset, on the front end, that they were setting up shell companies and probably, well, they didn't, they didn't specifically say it would be for illicit purposes, but clearly that was the inference in, I think, a lot of those cases. And I think there was only one lawyer who flat out refused to deal with the, the people and everybody else was, if nothing else, they were willfully blind to what was truly going on. Yeah, that's that was the same program that I saw, and it was very disturbing. Yes. Very yes. disturbing. Yes, it was. It was, and that's an area. You know, that's a, another concern is that you know, in in our economy, is the know your customer requirements, and, and in fact, the banks now going back to last May have to do a much better job of identifying. They're mandated by regulations now to try to better identify beneficial owners to the extent they can. And unfortunately, the point where we should be doing that is at the point of incorporation, which is with the states, the secretaries of state who control that. But the secretaries have, have been opposed to that for a variety of reasons. And then there's a bunch of political infighting. And with the, the, the dysfunction we see on the Hill now, the likelihood of seeing beneficial ownership uh, legislation is e even when you see a compelling report like that 60 Minutes report is unlikely to happen unless we get another 9-11 or like the Panama Papers and things like that bring attention to those issues. But there just isn't, I, I don't think there's the, the, the real will um, on the Hill to do anything in that area. So that ties back to money laundering, and, and yep. we've we've spoken a lot about the terrorist finance. I take it that when there is large sums of money flowing through, then the purpose would be to clean that so that the true source of that money is disguised. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I've got a great flow chart. It's too bad we don't have visuals here. I developed the flow chart that I use in, in a lot of the training, and it kind of depicts a combination of things. Well, the flow chart that you're talking about sounds pretty interesting, so we can't show it to people listening, but if they want to go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, will we be able to have it there for them? Oh, yes. You know, I'll definitely uh, send that to you. Great. I think uh, that will allow people to, to see how the money flows. If you look on the first level, money laundering, is the placement layering and integration so you're placing money into the system you're layering it and that's where you're making it more obscure and to the point you were making is the more obscure you make it and the more you move it around 
you know, the, the less transparent it is and the more difficult it is for folks, in, you know, in the Bureau or law enforcement to really be able to identify the criminal activity of and, and the purpose of the funds and the closer it gets to being legitimized. And obviously on the end, bringing the money out is the integration back into the system. So if you kind of couple that with in law enforcement, we would use the terms you would raise move, store, and spend money. So raising to moving would be the placement of money in a system. You know, the moving and storing and the continued moving and storing would be that layering process. And then the the spend would be the integration process. And, you know, I take that a little further and, and, and break it out by the source of funds then. And are we using the formal or informal system? And where's the ultimate destination of the funds? So that people can relate to this, you know, in their daily lives. Yeah. Are there are there other things that are being sold? I I thought I heard at one time something about baby formula was also. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a huge. Oh, so baby formula. Going back to when I was still running the terrorist financing operations section, we were that was a big money maker. What would happen was that baby formula would actually just be stolen from in the deliveries process off of uh, trucks or at the point where they were being dis- distributed, or it was basically being stolen and shoplifted in, in stores. And there was a big link back to terrorism that terrorists were using baby formula. And, and, and there were a lot of good anecdotal cases where people just like that Hezbollah cigarette smuggling cell that got arrested would be arrested from time to time and they would be affiliated with, with terrorist groups. But that was an area that did um, receive a lot of attention. Now, I'm not sure today if it's still considered um, a big fundraiser or not, but I know back toward the end of my career and shortly after that, it was. What kind of things are you aware of today that might be linked to terrorist funding? There are, again, a number of things. You know, on the organizational level, it's going to be like the kidnapping that I talked about. It'll be the uh, counterfeit goods, Hezbollah in particular. I mentioned this earlier, and I'll say it again, is that I believe Hezbollah is not only a terrorist organization, it's very dangerous, but I look at them as probably the most proficient organized crime family because of their infrastructure and their ability to to deal in counterfeit goods in the cigarette smuggling and in other criminal activities like that. Like for instance, Hezbollah controls the tri-border area in South America. And that's where Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina come together. And there's a lot of corruption down there. And they have a hand in all of the the illicit transshipments that go through that area. So any goods that are being counterfeited or any goods that are stolen, like the baby formula, they're going to have a hand in all that. And, and, and likewise, then they'll have a hand in the drug distribution along there and the human trafficking and human smuggling. That all plays in there. And then wherever they can, where terrorists can align with criminal organizations, maybe it's the drug trafficking, maybe it's the human trafficking, the antiquities coming out of the Middle, Middle East, and, and particularly, you know, for a good period of time in Iraq, the antiquities were something that was stolen and being marketed around the world and would benefit terrorists. But you're looking on the individual level, then you're going to look at more petty crimes like credit card fraud, 
stolen goods, identity theft, and things like that. But but more the credit card type of frauds would be what you would see on the individual sides of of people that were engaged in activities. Or to your your the point about the cigarette smuggling. It is schemes like that. There was a case in Florida involving um, electronics that were being shipped down to the tri-border, and there was a lot of false invoicing with that type of stuff. So we haven't talked about trade-based money laundering, but trade-based money laundering is a huge area that that criminals and terrorists are going to both use to to launder money and to raise funds. And a very good case example of that was the Lebanese-Canadian bank case, and that again involves Hezbollah, and it was was kind of a relationship between Hezbollah. There was an organized crime family in Lebanon called the Jumas and um, the Lazadas drug cartel. There was the transshipment of drugs and they were buying used cars. Used cars is a great money laundering vehicle because uh, what's the value of a used car? And so establishing these values. And if, if you and I decided we wanted to do some kind of illicit activity and we would we would barter and trade in goods and we both agreed on fixing the the invoicing price where we under and over invoiced to one of our benefits and the other one benefited from the sale of goods that would be something that would be incredibly difficult for the banks to identify especially if we we, we did it reasonably if we weren't to sometimes money launderers may not be the smartest of people sometimes. And and you can see that what's being presented, the pricing or the purpose of the activity. Selling a used car that's worth $500 and you're selling the used yep. car for $30,000. Yes, okay. yes, exactly. So you take that example. And if we were a little more disciplined about that and the value of the car was 500, but we could pass it for 5,000 and we did that in more volume and there was a reasonableness factor there, it would be incredibly challenging to be able to detect that activity that we were, we were involved in. My experience has always been over time, the weight of a fraud is, is ultimately going to cause that fraud to collapse. And that's a thing we haven't talked about because, I mean, we, my focus in, in our discussion has been terrorist financing, but most criminal activity, you know, whether it's terrorist related and it's, or if it's driven by organized crime and it's drugs or the cigarette smuggling that we talked about earlier on, there's going to be an element of fraud in all of these cases. And at some point, that fraud could be the weakness in an operation and and it's going to lead to it's going to lead to at some point the weight of a fraud is ultimately going to collapse and whether that's in a day whether it's the week whether it's a year whether it's 10 years at some point that's going to collapse and and um, you know law enforcement should be able to to pick up the pieces at that point but hopefully you know the, the idea is how do we how do we get to that point force it to collapse a little quicker or be able to identify it quicker. Can you give us a real world example of that situation? Not to drift off of our topic, but certainly, you know, when you look at the Ponzi schemes, uh, you know, and, and the advanced fee schemes and things, and I could tie it back to some, some schemes that involved terrorism, but, but the investment schemes at some point, that that spin and deception of what's going on is going to catch up, and what is being represented it is over time 
the reasonableness isn't going to be there and you're going to start you're going to start to see cracks in what's being presented as reasonable in those particular cases and so you you look at for instance i mentioned the uh, the electronics case that was in florida i believe the miami office of the fbi investigated it a few years ago and there was uh, the shipment of electronic goods the shipments were going into the tri-border area, ultimately to the leader of Hezbollah in Argentina. What they were doing was they were falsifying invoices and the delivery addresses. At some point, either the, the, the falsified invoices or the delivery addresses or some combination of the two became unreasonable. And the investigators were looking at that because it, it just didn't make a business sense pattern of how goods were being shipped. And when I guess they they investigated and, and did a more comprehensive investigation. They saw through the false invoicing and the, the shipment points were not what was represented in the contracting. And, and so they realized that the shipping was actually going to the leader of Hezbollah down in, uh, in Argentina. And he had already been sanctioned through OFAC screening. He was designated as, as a terrorist. And, and so any of those goods that were being shipped to somebody like that shouldn't have been. And so the fraud in the, in the invoicing kind of caught up to him at that point. And then you saw that too, in the Lebanese Canadian bank case that I mentioned that that involved the purchase and shipment of um, used cars. And unfortunately, a good part of the used cars that were being shipped were being shipped from the United States. And and so when you look at, when you go back and build up um, the volume of activity and then put a profile on the people that were involved in purchasing the cars, uh, they weren't your typical car dealers or people who operated in that in that business line. And, and so there were a lot of uh, abnormalities in the type of activities that were taking place. This is absolutely fascinating. I've been watching TV shows and movies just for the purpose of looking for cliches and misconceptions about the FBI. So I've been watching Desi Designated Survivor. Have you heard of that show? No, I haven't seen that one yet. Well, it's a show where the designated survivor becomes president uh, after a terrorist attack that has wiped out all of okay. the legislators yep. and executive branch. And they're looking for the terrorist and running down the streets, you know, shooting at terrorists. It would be fascinating to have a show that concentrated on some of these financial techniques used some of the real powerful ones. There are a couple of examples. We got involved with um, Western Union, and Western Union was a very good partner. We identified the fact that Western Union was being used as uh, a money mover of choice by a certain terrorist organization and into certain areas. And working with Western Union proactively and covering them with grand jury subpoenas or national security letters, we had intelligence from another intelligence service about the fact that money was going to come through Western Union, but their problem was they didn't know where in the country the money would be picked up. And it was critical for them because they knew the money was coming for terrorist purposes. And, and so we had a, a, an operation with Western Union where we were able to identify some of the, the, the shipment points where the money was coming from. And we would pass that off to the other intelligence service. And we had a mechanism in place to delay the final 
delivery of the funds or the money being picked up so that the intelligence service could get to the location and surveil that activity and then take whatever action they needed to take against the organization. And this other country told us we helped them prevent six attacks by virtue of them being able to identify those particular cells. And Western Union, is that's one example of one of the things you could do. We had, for a long while, there was a, a very secret operation that got exposed by the New York Times that we were able to, uh, not in a real-time fashion, but near real-time fashion, be able to follow swift transactions. So most of the, business, um, most of the financial transactions in the world go through SWIFT. SWIFT is a messaging system. And so when you make, like especially in correspondent banking, where you're making international transactions, there's going to be a SWIFT code involved in that. And so we were able to work, again, through getting grand jury subpoenas, uh, we were able, and it was a very highly monitored, um, very, very compartmentalized program to get certain SWIFT transactional information or, or messaging information that were able to help us link people in the United States to known terrorists outside the United States. And and that obviously was a huge investigative benefit. Unfortunately, the New York Times disclosed that program, and it was a very good collaboration between the FBI, the Treasury Department, and the CIA. And it was really a classic example of really great uh, interagency teamwork and cooperation. And ultimately, SWIFT, they, they were more cooperative with us on that. And I can talk about this now. Uh, it was really highly compartmentalized. You know, Not only did the uh, New York Times disclose that going back a few years ago, but I spoke at a conference in Canada and the general counsel from SWIFT actually talked about their side of it, how they cooperated with the Treasury Department and the FBI. And I happened to be there and, and had a long conversation with the general counsel. And, and she agreed that uh, in my presentations, go ahead and use that example. And I think, Jerry, going a little further, it also talks about the public-private sector, the importance of public and private sector partnerships when it comes to terrorism in particular. Is SWIFT an acronym? Yeah, it's, it's an acronym. And SWIFT actually is a, is a consortium of, of major banks, and it's kind of a mutual messaging system that, that the major financial institutions, particularly international financial institutions, are going to use to be able to transact with each other. And it keeps the cost of the transactions and things reasonable, and it's easier for them then to track them. These partnerships are so important. What happens in, a, in partnerships, if you think about it, when we were in law enforcement, our perspective and our objective was to develop evidence to put people in jail. After 9-11, and especially with terrorist financing, it was to disrupt terrorist activity. Financial institutions and the financial services industry, you know, they're about protecting the integrity of their institutions in the industry. And sometimes that clashes with the law enforcement. And SWIFT was a great example of that because of privacy considerations. They did not want to cooperate with us, but they felt like they couldn't and not to the level that we wanted them to because of that privacy concern. Um, so instead of having a best case scenario, we established a good case scenario. You know, we didn't get real live time information. We got information that had a bit of a drag in it, but it was still near real time. And that satisfied SWIFT. And plus we had very stringent 
auditing by a third-party auditor on whatever we did. We could only get into the SWIFT information for specifically predicated terrorist leads that we would have. They had to have specific predication that it was an urgent uh, situation involving terrorism. And, and you know, there were certain thresholds that we had to meet, and, and the auditors ensured that nobody abused that privilege. But establishing those kinds of partnerships and being able to be more proactive, that's where I'm going with this, is the ability to be proactive. And it, and it works like with money laundering, just like with terrorist financing. The more we can do proactively and use financial intelligence to be more predictive and certainly to be more proactive in how we do it and to, to use it more tactically um, efficient. That really sets terrorists and criminals back, and, and that really hurts them. And, and it certainly helps us, uh, the law enforcement side, being able to conduct those kinds of investigations. And I, I think the best case uh, example of this is what I like to talk about. If, if you look at a financial institution, particularly the banks, they have transaction monitoring. They have automated transaction monitoring systems. And every bank, again, in because of the fact that they have to have um, a reasonably designed anti-money laundering program, all of these financial institutions, they have a baseline transaction monitoring. And so they're looking and, and they set their, their filters to identify certain types of anomalies that might be indicative of suspicious activity. And here's a great example. Human trafficking, human smuggling is a very hideous, heinous crime. And the financial uh, indicators of and, and typologies for human trafficking are very identifiable. And so as banks are able to identify those patterns of activities, what I've always been a proponent of and what the bank, some banks do is on top of that baseline transaction monitoring, they do targeted monitoring. So they identify specific rule sets and specific scenarios that this is the pattern of activity that's conducive for a group that's acting, you know, it, that has a human trafficking activity going on. And what happened in a, in, a, in a given case was that Homeland Security investigations worked very closely with certain banks and analysts from the banks sat down with analysts from Homeland Security investigations and they got certain sets of facts and typologies. And this is the pattern of activity to follow. And they applied that. And, and, and on top of their regular baseline transaction monitoring, they had specific rules then that they entered into those transaction monitoring that were specific to that one, via, that one typology. And they started getting a lot of hits. And so that that would flag to them as being suspicious, and they immediately uh, filed suspicious activity reports to Homeland Security and to other law enforcement agencies that, that those agencies were able to act on and get more positive results out of. So those are the types of proactive initiatives that are really important. And I think that, you know, like um, if you fast forward to the terrorist financing operations section at FBI headquarters, they hold semi-annual meetings with uh, a, a working group of up to about 100 uh, bankers. And they share types of uh, typologies like that. And particularly uh, some of the banks that act internationally and, and do business in some of these areas, we're more concerned about the terrorist activity those banks are benefiting and, and being able to do um, a better job of scrubbing their their transaction monitoring and identifying potential activity. 
you're talking about looking at financial activity and being able to track, investigate, and disrupt terrorism activity, you know, based on that. So that's that's just that's too cool. Yeah, no, and and I, I have to say that uh, you know it's it, it's a lot more challenging today than it was when I was doing it. And but why is I that? Think because because uh, there's more bandwidth in a sense, and and you know, like, like I said, I've got the three basic funding streams. Those are the same three basic funding streams, but there are so many variances to each of those funding streams today. But I think that the bureau has a lot better capability in terms of their ability to data mine, their ability to use advanced analytical products that are out there, the way they've matured as an agency and and kind of as as in, in looking at and how to go about disrupting these um, these types of uh, activities and and to identify the different warning signs I think they've gotten a much much better at and so you know I feel a lot better about where we are even though it's probably more challenging than it was when we were in I want to make sure that everyone listening understands, you know, the contributions that you made to this area. This happened, you know, right after 9-11 that you had to pull all of this together and organize the operations section that you did. And for your contributions, uh, you received the Department of Justice's Criminal Division Award for Investigative Initiative and also the CIA's George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism. So congratulations to you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I worked with a lot of really good people who made that happen. Um, it, it's, that's not a singular. I mean, I, I was the face of what we did, but there were a lot of people that share those awards. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of what we all accomplished together under some very trying circumstances. And I'm very proud of where they are today. Well, talking about where people are today, what are you doing now? So I, I hope you didn't take that, all those skills and knowledge that you had, and, and now you're playing golf every day. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I probably work more now than I did even back then. Oh, don't I know about that? Yeah, um, I, I've, I've stayed very active. I, um, I enjoy teaching and I enjoy training, uh, so I do that as much as I can. I'm very involved in the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists, and, and so I, I, I do a lot of work with them, and I, I still work with financial institutions from the private sector side of trying to help them identify terrorist financing. You have your own company to do that? Yes. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a consultant and I've purposefully stayed on my own to give me more flexibility in where I want to go or where I think I can make a better impact. All right. And that's DML Associates, LLC. Yes. Thank you, Jerry. At the end of every interview, I like to give my guests the last word. Well, you know, I thank you for taking the time to have a session like this, because to me, this, uh, you know, I've seen firsthand the benefits of disruption from identifying terrorist financing. And it's a difficult thing to do. But the more we promote awareness to it, you know, the, the more likely are we are able to identify and disrupt terrorist financing. So thank you for taking the time to have a discussion like this. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Dennis Lormel, and you'll find two articles from the FBI website about terrorist financing and money laundering. Plus, there's that flowchart that Dennis created, which tracks the source, methods, and access 
to terrorist financing. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you today, but I can tell you that I got a Black Friday deal on the ebook and audiobook for Michael Connolly's newest police procedural, Dark Sacred Night. I'll be listening and reading that over the weekend. I'll talk to you about it next week. But in the meantime, I hope you'll check out my books in my FBI Corruption Squad series with Special Agent Carrie Wheeler. Pay to Play and Greedy Givers are available as ebooks and paperbacks, and Pay to Play is available as an audiobook. You can pick them up at Amazon.com for yourself or for someone you know who loves crime fiction. Thank you for your support. My new book, FBI and Film and Fiction, is almost complete, but it will be several months of editing and review by FBI headquarters before I can get it to you. But in my December reader team email, I'm going to let you have a peek at the new cover. Let me know what you think. Thanks for sticking around to the very end of the episode. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.